0: Second Corinthians chapter ten, Paul writes where we left off in verse seven. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself: that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction. I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure. But within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you. That we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, but having hope that. As your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. In chapter 10, Paul continues to defend his apostolic ministry from the lies and the accusations of the false teachers, those Judaizers who had made their way to Jerusalem, who had infected and inserted themselves in the Corinthian church, trying to make it seem that the gospel that Paul was preaching The gospel of grace, the gospel of mercy, the gospel of love was somehow not enough. People in ministry have to be able to handle criticism. It was William Arthur Ward who said the quickest way to get in water over your head is to tell someone that they're all wet. And that's what the false prophets and the false teachers were telling Paul. You don't know what you're talking about, Paul. Not all criticism is unjust or unfair or unwise. God will use critics in our lives to help us see our pride, to teach us humility, to change us from the inside. But Paul doesn't wage war according to the methods of this world. We've already learned that the weapons that he uses have been forged in heaven and proven on the battleground of the human heart. It's spiritual and not carnal weapons that pull down Satan's strongholds. As he's talked about, remember earlier in chapter 10, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Paul wants to follow the example of Jesus in verse one, use spiritual weapons in verses two through six. Paul's calling and credentials, we know, were from Jesus. And Paul may not have had the physical stamina or the personal charisma of some of the other apostles. But the truth is that God had called him and was using him. And Paul may not have been impressive in person, at least according to some people's criteria of what they think constitutes impressive. But he understands that false comparisons are the domain of the immature and the carnal Christian. So Paul's advice, don't judge by appearance in verses seven through eleven. Let God do the commending in verses twelve through eighteen. When dealing with critics, number one, you should consider the source. And number two, remember that no one is immune to criticism. And number three, understand that criticism can be responded to in one of two ways, both being wrong. We can ignore the criticism or not deal with it at all or just pretend like it's no big deal. And the other wrong way of dealing with it. Is to become so preoccupied with it that it paralyzes our life. And so if we take criticism too lightly. We might miss out on valuable instruction. If we simply ignore criticism like water on a duck. We may fail to grow or we might become unteachable or we might remain immature. However, if we become crushed by criticism. There's another danger. It's the danger of losing heart, of giving up on something that God has called us to do. And again, I'm thinking of the large things that we have in our life where God calls you to be a husband or a wife or or a minister or a person who's who's a part of a ministry. And you're trying desperately in order to provide help and support and ministry. And then you receive nothing but criticism and it could cause you to go, well, why even try? And you give up. And so there's a balance. Some criticism needs to be answered, but much of it does not. When we take all criticism as the God's honest truth, we might become intimidated or insecure. That's why we take it, as Chuck Swindoll used to say, take criticism to heart. But also take it with a grain of salt. Someone said what people say about us is never quite true, but it's never quite false either. They always miss the bullseye, but they rarely fail to hit the target. Uh Oh, so some criticism needs to be answered and others don't. And we, we begin with the balance. And where does it lie? Well, I'm going to suggest to you it lies in asking a different kind of a question. And that is, when I have to deal with criticism, what is it based on? Is it based on a misunderstanding? If that's the case, do your best to clear up the misunderstanding. Ask the question, is the critic open to dialogue and an exchange of ideas What if the person is a chronic or a persistent critic? What if every time you meet a particular person, it always leads to an argument? It never leads to something pure and peaceable and gentle. It always results in a fight. I'm going to suggest to you, let it go. Let it go. Why? Who's the most important example we have as Christians? Jesus. How did Jesus deal with criticism? Well, sometimes he answered quickly and directly. Sometimes he said nothing. And when you look at the times when he answers quickly and directly, you're going to find That there's the opportunity to change. But when Jesus says nothing, then you can almost certainly expect that the critics have a hammer and nails in their hand. And that the encounter is going to result in somebody dying. And so, Paul has critics. The criticism included things like, Paul, you're a hypocrite. Paul, you hide behind your letters and you're not willing to say what you mean and mean what you say. You have some fancy things to write, but when it comes to being in person, you're you're less than impressive. Paul, you're overreaching and overbearing in your authority in verse eight. And some have even resented his leadership, even though his leadership has been given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you're carnal. Paul, you're not even attractive. Paul, you're not fun to listen to. Paul, I don't like your style. Paul, I don't like your tone. Paul, I don't like your role. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what it says in verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. How will Paul deal with all the criticism without losing his temper or his nerve or his resolve? I'm going to suggest something. That even as you look at the passage, Paul says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? I'm going to suggest to you that when you're faced with criticism, look what Paul does. He makes a plea for a change of perspective. He says, do you look at things on the outside? In a sense, what does Paul mean? Paul is accusing the Corinthians of judging him based on In part the outside. And so the moment that he says this. There's several things that we can think about. Did they judge a man by his commanding presence? Did they judge him by his eloquence of speech? Do they judge him by his great powers of logic or persuasion? I'm going to suggest to you that Paul might be asking even something a little bit different. Moffat translates this. Look at things which are before your faces Or look at what is the obvious fact. Paul is inviting the reader or the critic to look just a little bit deeper. Why is this important for you and me? Because when there's a problem, when there's a criticism, when there's a misunderstanding, sometimes what we need to do is just look a little bit below the surface. We, you know, we would like to often take things at face value. But taking things at face value doesn't always answer the issue. It makes perfect sense that we try to look at ourselves for a moment from the other person's perspective. The person's criticizing me or the person's criticizing you. You're hearing the criticism and you pause and you just for a moment you say, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to put myself in that person's place and I'm going to try to look at the circumstance and me from their perspective to try to get a handle on what's going on. We may not change our mind. We may still disagree. But it's going to take some of the salt. It's going to take some of the sting out of the disagreement. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll today and he was talking about Dawson Trotman, who is the founder of the Navigator's. He was telling an amazing story how Dawson Trotman had a premonition that he was going to die. And he set things in order and and he was talking with his wife and he had this reputation of always building people up and lifting people up. And he made arrangements. He was young. He was healthy. And he just had this amazing premonition that something was going to happen. He went to some lake in New York and they were out on a speedboat and sometimes the speedboat would turn and and that just that way. And it flipped the people off off of the, the boat. And one of the ladies began to sink like a rock. And Dawson Trotman went in after her and picked her up and lifted her back into the boat. Saved her life. And then he sank like a rock. People who were there said if the entire United States Navy would have been there, they couldn't have saved him. That it was just his time to go. But his life was marked by lifting people up. He had a good method for handling criticisms that was directed at himself. He said no matter how unfair the criticism might seem to be. He would always take it into his prayer closet. In effect, he would spread it before the Lord. And then he would say, Lord, show me the kernel of truth that's hidden in this criticism. Paul writes. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so We are Christ. I think that what Paul is writing in this particular passage, I think what he means is that the critic or the opponent were allegedly basing their criticism on the grounds that they would have considered divine revelation by Jesus. In other words, the false teachers from Jerusalem, the Judaizers would basically say we belong to Jesus. Were the critics claiming to be servants of Jesus, that might be what Paul is saying here. And Paul is, in fact, responding. Do you belong to Jesus? Well, so do I. And I'm going to suggest to you that it means more than just, hey, look, are you convinced that you're a Christian? Well, guess what? I'm convinced that I'm a Christian. The way that I would even think about this is. If you're a Christian and I'm a Christian or two Christians are involved in some sort of impasse or criticism, that the expectation would be that you handle it in such a way that's honoring to Jesus and it's consistent with the Bible. That makes sense to you, right? If two people claim to be Christians, then you would hope that they would begin to evaluate the circumstances of the disagreement in light of Christ. In in light of who he is, it says. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our ministry or our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. So second, Paul reveals and expands his motive. He makes sure that the critic understands exactly what's driving Paul. And so he's saying, look, criticism. Let's try and get a different perspective. Criticism. Criticism. Explain your motive. Now, he's making sure that the critic understands exactly what's driving him. For Paul, authority isn't simply being in charge. It isn't just saying, well, I'm the pastor and and I'm in charge. What Paul is saying is with authority comes the responsibility. Look what it says. To build up to encourage so now now think about this you've got two people and they've got a disagreement or they're at odds with one another and the net result is one person's constantly being built up and the other one's constantly being torn down does that make sense to you paul in, in fact is saying authority is for the purpose of helping building not just simply tearing down and destroying. Now, let me make a caveat here or a warning or, or put things in perspective. Sometimes you have to tear stuff down in order to build it back up. But I'm going to suggest to you that the vast majority of the time that the interactions that we experience with one, one another should be times of encouragement and and mutual Building up the fire department has to sometimes tear down a burning building. The police department might have to knock down a suspect and take them to jail. But remember what the fire department and the police department are both motivated by public safety. A fire, a fire crew isn't going to burn a building down because that's what they think that they want to do. If they're going to set a fire Almost invariably, it's in order to save lives and save property. And here's the point. Authority may include reproof or correction, but it's always for instruction and restoration. And so the passage implies a couple of things. Paul was accused of serving without divine permission. Paul's response... No, that's not true. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given authority in connection with the churches. And I want you to think it through. Paul has been given authorization by Jesus to go out into the world and to preach the gospel and share Christ and bring people into a right relationship with God in Christ. So is it possible that the churches that Paul helped establish Is there some measure of authority that he should be entrusted with? I think that the answer is yes. But is it the kind of authority that gives you permission to lord it over people's lives? No, he's saying it's the kind of authority that's been given in order order to build them up in the faith and to build them up in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's basically saying. Now, again, I want you to pause, pause and think about this for a moment. If the critic and the criticism always is destructive and tearing down and Paul is saying. As I've exercised leadership and authority in the context of being the founding pastor of this church and I have used my authority in order to love you and serve you and build you up, which seems to be the more credible source of information or authority. And then look what he says in verse nine. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters. In other words, think about what what you're reading. Paul is writing to the critic and he's basically saying, (laughs) do my letters scare you? That's actually not what he's saying. Paul is saying exactly the opposite, that when he's writing the book of Romans, when he's writing first and second Corinthians, when he's writing. Ephesians Philippians Colossians Galatians when he's writing these books is it is it in order to make your life miserable the answer is no Paul has no desire to terrify Christians Paul has boasted in his authority not for the purpose of generating fear or terror Paul doesn't want the reader or the critic or the Corinthian to think that he's trying to scare them into submission. Because that would be playing into the critic's hand. Verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. This is the the criticism. Now the charge is being leveled. Paul's critics level the charge. Number one, he's writing threatening letters. But in real life. He's the picture of weakness in body and in speech. Paul is addressing the person who says. Paul. You're not all that fun to look at. And you're not even fun to listen to. By the way, I need to tell you something. This is every pastor's nightmare right here. Imagine just imagine you're me just for a moment. Imagine that that you're me. And your job is to get up here in this pulpit. You've got to get in front of people and you have to talk. But not only do you have to talk, but you realize that they're looking at you. They're looking at you. They're looking at your hair. And they're looking at the scratches on your face. They're looking at you. The living Bible really rubs it in bad. He sounds big, but it's all noise. When he gets here, you'll see that there's nothing great about him. You've never heard a worse preacher. Actually, it captures the sentiment. A second century writer has given us one of the very few historical descriptions of Paul that have made their way to us. Here's how he describes Paul. He was a small man, small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. In other words, Paul was this guy whose eyebrows grew together. He had like a Milton the Monster eyebrow. There were not two eyebrows. There was just one eyebrow there. And he had this hooked nose. And so you're seeing this little bow-legged, bald guy with a hooked nose whose eyebrows have grown together. And you've got to think. Yeah, I, I could see how Paul would be a little bit nervous. Here's what Paul writes in verse 11. Look what it says. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letter, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. I think that there are two ways to read this passage. One way is that Paul is writing, I am writing or the way that I'm writing or I'm writing in the way. That I am in person. In other words, this isn't a confession of all of the criticism. That he doesn't want to terrorize or intimidate. But part of what he wants to do is assure and comfort. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine you meet Paul. At Chick-fil-A. And there's Paul with his bald head, his unibrow, hooked nose, bow legs, and he's ordering a Chick-fil-A sandwich and a tea that's half sweet, half regular. And you see him ordering at Chick-fil-A. Is he going to be the same person in real life? Have you ever met someone that you only meet under certain circumstances like Um, A teacher, you you had an elementary school or a high school teacher and you see them at Starbucks and all of a sudden your face drops as you realize that this person has a life outside of the school and you're a little bit taken aback because you're not used to seeing them in in a normal human being setting. Or you see me somewhere other than behind this pulpit. You listen to me on the radio, you hear me behind this pulpit, and then you spend time with me and you ask and answer the question, is he the same guy on the radio behind the pulpit in real life? I'm going to suggest to you that the Paul who's writing Romans and first Corinthians, the same Paul who's writing Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, the same guy who's writing these things is the same guy who he's going to be in real life. In other words, Paul is assuring the critic and the supporter that he's authentic, that the way he is is, in fact, really the way that he is. And not everyone can make that claim, by the way, can they? Many pastors and ministers and workers spend a great deal of time trying to make a good impression. And I don't blame them. Imagine because ministry is a lot like dating. When you date someone, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to comb your hair. You know, you want to make sure that, the, that your eyebrow has been shaved right in the middle so it looks like you have two eyebrows. You want to brush your teeth. You, you, because, again, when somebody comes up to pray with you and you go, Wow, Gino has, like, really bad breath. It's, it smells like real human breath. And wow, that's body odor. Doesn't he know about personal hygiene? And then all of a sudden, in a way, you're relieved because you go, oh no, he's like a real person. He has all of the limitations that I have. Paul isn't simply putting his best foot forward into trying to fool you into thinking that he's more holy and he's more righteous than he really is. And so, many pastors and ministers, they might seem to be one way on the radio or behind the pulpit and completely different in real life. Let me ask you kind of a hard question. What's more impressive to you? A person with real problems and real struggles and real difficulties and real failures or a phony righteousness? Which impresses you the most? Some of you might answer, that's a false premise. That's a choice between two opinions, neither of which constitute the true Christian path. In order to be a true Christian, you don't have to be a miserable failure or a complete holy roller. Somewhere in between is the reality of a real person. But I'm going to suggest to you. The point that Paul is making and the point that I'm trying to make. Is that it's not helpful to exaggerate your righteousness in order to cover your your failures as if no one knows what you're really like. No, Juno, it shouldn't come to you as a surprise that your church realizes that you're a human being and that sometimes you make mistakes and failures. Same thing with you, right? Should it come as a shock and a surprise that people discover that you're a human being with all of the limitations of being a human being? And so Paul writes in verse 12, look what it says. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know what I think he's doing? He's exercising a little apostolic satire. Let me help you think it through. The false teachers were in the habit of comparing themselves with others. Think it through. You're a teacher and you're taller than Paul. You have more hair than Paul. You have hair that people can believe in. You're attractive to look like you. You look like you could be on TV or or radio. And so the false teachers are comparing themselves and they would hold Paul up to the congregation in the hope of making him the object of ridicule and scorn. They accuse Paul of being bold. But even Paul isn't willing to be so bold As to number himself among those who commend themselves. In other words, Paul is not so bold as to say, guess what? I'll be the standard. Although elsewhere, he really does write that Paul is bold enough to say in another place, follow me as I follow Jesus. He doesn't say, follow me and then do whatever I do. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. If I'm if I'm speaking the words that that would honor Jesus, if I'm saying the things that would honor honor Jesus, if I'm doing the things that would honor Jesus, then you should follow me as I'm following Jesus, because this is the honorable thing to do. But Paul isn't willing to make himself the standard. What is the standard or who is the standard really is a better question. And if Jesus is the standard of righteousness, if Jesus is the standard of thought, behavior, of how we're going to act in any given situation, this is part of the point. Paul is basically addressing the person who serves as themselves as the standard. In other words, he is talking about the critic who evaluates everything in light of what they say and what they do or what they think is right. One of the things that really becomes surprising to me is when we are so selfish and. Self-centered that we evaluate all right, all wrong, all truth, all beauty in light of what we think. I did something really selfish and immature. I, I think I've told you guys the story how many years ago I had John MacArthur on my radio program. A person who I deeply respect, admire and have benefited from greatly. We have a few differences of opinion. And I said to John MacArthur, I don't agree with everything that you say. And then I caught myself and I said, but I can't afford to ignore anything you say. And John MacArthur helped me take my foot out of my mouth. And he said, ah, a Berean. Because we become the standard. Your theology is correct if it's exactly like mine. Your eschatology is correct if it's exactly like mine. And see, this is the Achilles heel of cliques and clubs who believe they constitute the measure of political correctness and cultural correctness and theological correctness. Now, don't get me wrong. I really do believe that there is such a thing as truth. And there is such a thing as truth that's revealed in the Bible. The point that Paul is making as a teacher and critic is make sure that you have the right standard. The wrong standard is it's right if I say it's right. The right standard is it's right if Jesus says it's right. If Jesus said this and Jesus Did this and this is what Jesus would do. And so I'm going to suggest to you that the word of God serves as the plumb line to measure the rightness or the wrongness. It's not me that serves as the standard of rightness and wrongness. It's everything that the Bible reveals and it's everything that Jesus does. And so he says in verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us. A sphere which especially includes you. Here's what Paul is basically saying. What is he willing to boast in? Paul will restrict his boasting to that area of ministry that God has entrusted to him. What does that mean? In part, it must mean that Paul's practice isn't to intrude into the ministry of other people. He he isn't, he isn't saying, look, I'm not here to evaluate, criticize, or otherwise undermine what other ministries are doing. I'm here to tell you what God has done in my ministry. What does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you that this is an obvious reference to the Judaizers. The legalists who insisted that the Gentile Christians have to adopt Jewish practices. It was their practice to worm their way into the congregation that was established by Paul or some other Christian build on another man's foundation. But remember where we read elsewhere, does Paul say, I'm going to build on other people's foundation or I'm going to establish a new work? Because I refuse to build on another man's foundation, and that's the right When the Judaizers boasted, they boasted on another man's work or another man's ministry. For Paul, the sphere of influence included you. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. A sphere which especially included you. In what sense? It was God who called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It was God who called Paul to go to Corinth and establish the church. So the reason for coming to Corinth... Was to bring them the good news. So here's part of what Paul is doing. Paul is communicating the facts of his ministry. But this brings up yet another point. One of the most effective ways to deal with criticism. Not simply changing your perspective. Although that's important. It's to give the facts. There is nothing that will combat criticism. As well as a strong, healthy. Dose of the truth. What's the truth in this situation? What is the truth in this situation? And again, I suspect that Paul is communicating these facts both for himself as well as the reader. Paul is reminding them and himself. What's the truth in this situation? What's the truth as I'm dealing with these critics and the the people who say I I look funny and I talk funny and all of this other stuff. he, He begins to remind himself no God called me. No God anointed me. God entrusted me with the ministry. God allowed me to come to Corinth. He allowed me to preach the gospel. He allowed you to respond to the gospel. He allowed your heart to change and your life to change and your circumstances to change. And so the reason for coming to Corinth was to bring them the good news in verse 14. Paul also also reminds them that he never exercised inappropriate authority. He didn't lord it over them as some kind of celebrity pastor in verse 15. He reiterates that Corinth wasn't the only place of his ministry, but that his ministry extended to other regions beyond, in verse 16. Part of what I think is happening... In dealing with the criticism, Paul is taking himself and his ego out of the equation. Paul's world and ministry. Is larger than the critic. And larger than the criticism. And even in saying that. This is not to mean that criticisms are dismissed on the basis of how big your ministry is or how large your ministry is or how successful your ministry is. That's not the point that Paul is making, but rather that Paul's ministry and its boundaries have been established by God. They've been ordained by God. And so in verse 14, it says, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you. That we came with the gospel of Jesus or with the gospel of Christ. So here's the idea. Paul was commissioned by the Lord Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. True or false? True. Is Paul guilty of excessive boasting? I don't think so. Why? Because Paul has come to them with the gospel. But remember the journey. Remember the journey. Remember the trials. Remember the testing. Remember the affliction. Remember the difficulty the trial, the testing, the affliction, the difficulty in order to reach Corinth with the gospel. So Paul sacrifices personally. He makes the necessary sacrifices. He weathers the storms. He faces the difficulties. And then he shows up on the Corinthians doorstep. And he says, I've got some amazing news for you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. I've got some amazing news for you. The darkness and the emptiness in your life. All of the stuff that you grew up with and that you struggled with. All of the painful failures that you experienced. All of the issues that you ever dealt with. There's a Jesus. He loves you and he died for your sin. He made the necessary sacrifice so that your sin could go away. He bore the cross. He loves you and he died for you, but he did even more than that. He rose from the dead to prove that he was the person that God sent and that your sins are really forgiven. And guess what? Their lives were changed. Their hearts were changed. Their families were changed and their marriage were were changed and their circumstances were changed. And then Paul is moving on to a new ministry. And after his departure, other people step into the circumstance and try to ruin his ministry. Just like for some of you in, in your life. You heard the truth about Jesus, how he loves you and how he died for you and how the grace of God is what changes you and transforms you. And other people showed up in your life and said, no, no, you got it all wrong. You went to Calvary Chapel and they told you how God's love and God's grace. They forgot to tell you that unless you go to church on Saturday, unless you read your Bible, unless you give a million dollars, unless you go door to door, unless you read my book, unless you do this and unless you do that, then you're not real. Well, it's probably suspect. But you're probably not even saved. So tell me again how you're saved. Well, you're saved by grace through faith. Plus, what else? Well, you've got to do this. You've got to come to my church. And you've got to read my book. And you've got to follow my rules. And you've got to do what I tell you to do. And then what happens? Well, then you may or may not be saved, whether or not, depending on if I like you today or if I don't like you today. And so there were two kinds of people. The people who go, no, I think, I think I like the message of grace way better. And the people who are seduced for reasons that I don't always understand. And they want to return to the slavery and the degradation of being saved by something other than grace. This is exactly what cults do. Isn't it? They'll say it was all well and good that you heard what these people said. But now you've got to go to my church, read my book, follow my rules. And so Paul writes in verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased. We shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Do you understand what it's saying? The Apostle Paul refuses to boast in matters that he's not directly involved in or isn't a direct involvement of of his of his ministry. And again, this is the very thing that the Judaizers were, in fact, wrong, grievously wrong. They boasted in what Peter has done and James has done and what John has done and what Paul has done. They're boasting in the other people's labors. Paul's hope was that as the Corinthians faith increased, as they grew deeper in love with Jesus, as they grew in grace and in the knowledge of the truth and grew up as mature men and women in the faith, that Paul could now move on. To other places. The Roman Empire was a big world. And Paul is the apostle to all of the Gentiles. And so Paul would follow this rule throughout his ministry. The problems, the troubles, the setbacks in Corinth were hindering him in his ministry and in his journeys. And so he says in verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. In other words, Paul's desire was to preach The gospel in the regions beyond Corinth. It probably meant Western Greece. It probably means, okay, guess what? It's time to move on now. I want to go to Italy. I want to go to Spain. And not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul is the original person, way before Star Trek, who said he wants to boldly go where no man has gone before. Roman Empire, the final frontier. These are the journeys of Paul, the apostle, whose ongoing mission to present the gospel to people who have never heard it. So that they could experience hope and grace and mercy and love. To preach the gospel, he says in verse 16, let's review just really quickly. Number one, Paul corrects the reader. The critic perspective. He basically says, look deeper. Then he clarifies his own motive. In other words, why is he doing what he's doing? He's explaining what he's doing. And then he confesses his authenticity. He says, I'm going to be honest and transparent with you. And then he communicates the facts. He tells the truth. In verse 17, he says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What does that mean? He's saying, be content to glory only in what the Lord was pleased to do. Think about it in this context. He's saying, you know what I'm willing to glory in? I'm willing to glory in what God in his grace and his mercy and his privileges has seen fit to do that. What Jesus has done in my heart and in my ministry. And he invites you to do the same. He invites you to do the same and say, guess what? You can be biblically proud of what Jesus has done in your life. In what sense? To to glory in what God has done. Verse 18, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Self-commendation isn't what wins God's approval. In other words, when you go, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. And then God in heaven goes... Wow, that's pretty impressive what you've done. Paul is saying exactly the opposite. It isn't what you're bragging about that that wins God's approval. The question Paul's critics have to come to grips with and what the Lord does is that you are commended in your ministry by what your real ministry means. Paul is basically saying to the critics. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about the discipleship that you've been involved in. Tell me about the gospel that you've preached. Tell me about the lives that have been changed. Because of the gifts and callings that God has placed in your life. Now that's impressive. That's, that's what's impressive. Impressive. Can you demonstrate the approval of the Lord by pointing to those who have been converted through your preaching? That's what counts. Can you point to the churches that you've established and the ministries that have been that are being done? Paul was willing and able to show proof of the Lord's commendation of his ministry. It goes back to what he has said earlier. You want proof that I'm a legitimate apostle? He goes, you're my proof. You're my proof. The false teachers were all aglow with boasting. They were giving glowing accounts of their service and spectacular success. Paul doesn't do that. He never does that. And so the Corinthians seem to enjoy that type of boasting. And all of chapter 11 is going to be that oh that you would bear with me in a little folly and indeed to do bear with me but that's for for next week so just very quickly jesus responds to his critics perfectly don't you wish you could respond to your critics perfectly each and every time we have this sort of huge disadvantage we don't have omniscience and perfect purity Jesus has omniscience and perfect purity, which I think gives him the ability to do things we can't do. Paul responds to his critics. In a way that I think is helpful and insightful for you and me, because he's a man just like you, a human being just like you. We may not always handle criticism like Jesus. But if we want to grow in maturity and wisdom. Just a couple of quick things. Number one, do what Paul did. Own up. When someone is right, tell them they're right. You know, sometimes the hardest words that can ever form on our lips was, Okay. You were right. And I. I was wrong. But guess what? The moment you do that. There's hope. When the critics words are true, even partially true, admit it, not only will it diffuse your own anger, it'll sharpen your thinking, and it may even help you grow in areas where God wants you to grow. Second, stand fast. If you're right, it's not helpful to pretend that you're wrong. If you've examined the scriptures, if you've examined your heart, if you've prayed about it, if if you've listened with compassion and sensitivity, you don't have to budge from the truth. You don't have to pretend that lies are truth or that truth is a lie. Would you be offended if I repeated that? You do not have to pretend that the truth is a lie or that lies are truth. Sometimes we can set the criticism aside. And say, look, boast in the Lord, not yourself. So own up, stand fast, and when all else fails, calm down. What do I mean? It isn't important that you win every battle every time. Let the Lord defend you. When you come to an impasse and nothing seems to sway the critic, sometimes it's okay for you to go, Lord, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to let you be the champion. I'm going to let you defend me. You know the truth. I believe that you will take care of me. Why? Verse 18. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved. But the Lord. Who commends. And so. Own up. Stand fast. Calm down. But we'll have a lot more fun the next time we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we can't walk through life without saying or doing something that's bound to offend somebody. Lord, we know that silver dollar toes are just a part of the world in which we live. That when we live in proximity and intimacy with, with people, that, Lord, we're bound to step on their toes. And, Lord, again, it's not our goal, purpose, and life to criticize, antagonize, or alienate people. And yet, Lord, we pray that with maturity and humility, that, Lord, we would... Be quick to listen, slow to speak. That, Lord, we would imitate Paul in his maturity and humility and commitment to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.